Last Sunday, we began our study of Peter's second epistle. And as we've noted in studies of other epistles, it follows the pattern of letters of that time. We have the writer, the, the people or the audience to whom he is writing, and then a greeting. And to review briefly, we saw as to the writer a pair of doubles, Simon Peter, servant and apostle. Simon is his given name. Peter is the name that Jesus gave him. But in either case, we are reminded of a man who seemed, well, pretty self-assured and sort of a rugged individualist and someone who found himself getting into trouble oftentimes. He was called by Jesus to be a fisher of men and then later given the responsibility to feed God's people. He's a servant and an apostle. And the temptation is to say that apostle is high and servant is low, and so they, they sort of balance out. That uh, being a servant points to humility and being an apostle points to authority. I think they both point to authority. If you consider that in the Old Testament, those who were in positions of power are referred to as the servants of the Lord. It is a position of great honor. And those who were given those positions were called to be obedient. Because they were not obedient, we have in the prophets prophecies regarding someone who will come and make things right, and he is referred to as God's servant. But in both cases, servant and apostle, we must take care that we do not miss the point. All of that is secondary to of whom is he the servant? Whose servant is he? And who is the one who commissioned him to be an apostle? As to the audience, we're not given specifics, as we are in the first letter, but because of what we find in chapter 3, verse 1. Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. Uh, I think we can safely assume that Peter is writing the same group of Christians. The first letter dealt with Christians who are facing persecution, trouble outside the church. Now in the second letter, he addresses trouble within the church in the form of false teachers. But you simply can't... You have to address it to someone, and in fact, he does. To those who, through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, have received a faith as precious as ours. There's much to say about this, but I just want to review. The one thing that stood out to me and stands out to me still is, and I see it as key to understanding what he writes in this letter, a faith as precious as ours. In his first letter, Peter spoke of a number of things that were precious, the precious blood of Christ, the living stone rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to him, the precious cornerstone, and then your faith of greater worth than gold. Here in the second epistle, if you look at verse number four of chapter one, um, Peter will write about his very great and precious promises. But because we're using English, we may miss something that's very important, and that is he's not using the same word. In fact, the word that he uses here in verse number two is found only here in the New Testament. It is not the same word that we find used elsewhere for precious. Because he doesn't say precious, does he? It is as precious as, the ESV, of equal standing with ours. The New American Standard of the same kind as ours. I mentioned this last week. One might wonder what is the big deal. Peter is writing as one of the original followers of Jesus. He is writing to people who never met Jesus. Peter is an apostle. They are not. Peter is Jewish. They are not. He lived in Palestine. They do not. 
The question might be then, are they some type of second class Christian? That they are not the same type of Christian as Peter and the Jews who were there during the lifetime of Jesus. I've called it a second generation complex. I might call it something else. They're not first generation. And so there might be the temptation to think we don't have it as good as them. We are somehow second class people. And Peter will not accept that. He rejects that. And I don't think he just does it for this reason. But if you think of yourself as second class, then someone can come along and say, I have something that will help you get promoted to first class. And that's where the false teachers come in. They say, what you have is not sufficient. I will give you something more or I will point to something else. As to the greeting, we find what we found in First Peter. Grace and peace be yours in abundance with something added through the knowledge of God and of Jesus, our Lord. Um, knowledge is a big issue in this book, and we will deal with it as it comes up time and time again. I would just point out that here in the greeting, we already find it mentioned. So this isn't fluff. This is setting the stage for what will come later in the letter. Today, we will look at what begins the letter proper, if you wish, in which we find three main themes. The nature of the Christian life. Chapter two, the warning against false teachers. And then chapter three, the certainty of Christ's return. The first part, verses 3 to 21 of chapter 1, can be seen in three parts. And we will only look at the first part today, the power and promises of Jesus in verses 3 and 4. Then next week, the Lord willing, verses 5 through 11, the productive Christian. How is it we are supposed to live? And then verses 12 through 21, the wonderful section, the place of remembering for those who are God's people. Verses 3 and 4 deal with power and promises. That's what will be dealt with in chapters 2 and 3. I I said last week, the first four verses, and it's actually the first 11 verses of this chapter, are one sentence. Uh, We have sort of chopped it up, and we may lose a sense of continuity. As Peter introduces this letter, he's setting the stage for what he will talk about later. Look, if you would, at verses 3 and 4. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness, through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these he has given us his very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. One commentator in writing on this said, In a cautious, skeptical age, leery of excessive commercial promises, we may by habit hear Peter's first enthusiastic claim a little tentatively. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness may seem too good to be true. Particularly to Christians often discouraged by spiritual failures in self and others. Is this the known to be impulsive Peter again, as recorded in the Gospels, making claims that reality will not substantiate? You know, if it sounds too good to be true... People would say it is too good to be true. One other writer says that Peter makes a number of startling assertions about Jesus and his work in this section. In fact, they are so startling and the language is so secular, doesn't show up in English, but in Greek, that some people think that if Peter, in fact, did write this, he's completely sold out. He has left the Christian faith and has compromised with the Hellenistic spirit of his age. This is not the case. We will see as we go through.
First of all, verse number three, the power of Jesus. It must begin with the phrase, his divine power. Grammatically, his refers back to Jesus, our Lord, at the end of verse number two. Um, so in verses three and four, Peter is speaking about Jesus. And I think we need to be clear about that. Divine, the word used, is used in the New Testament only three times. Verse three, verse four, that's two. The third one is in Acts chapter 17, when Paul is at Athens and he is making a case for the true God, whom he is referred to as the unknown God. Divine, by the way, if you have a concordance or if you Google it or whatever, you will see divine showing up in other passages in the New Testament in English translations, but they're not the word that Peter uses here. It's only used three times. It's very rarely used in the New Testament, but it was very common in that day. And so it seems that as Peter begins to write, he will use the language of the marketplace, the language of his day, as he seeks to make his case. Divine power is not a phrase that echoes something that we find elsewhere in Scripture. Um, but it is very, very frequent in contemporary writing of that time. The idea of God's power, that we find throughout Scripture, as one writer put it, covering every major stage in the history of God's people. We see God's power throughout the Old Testament. And Peter wants to make the connection. He wants to link it with the person of Jesus. The great acts of God in the past and the coming of Jesus in the Gospels. If we could read Peter's mind, it seems that what he wants to do is confront and answer the question that I think his readers are asking and that we, in fact, may ask ourselves. Is the power of Jesus sufficient on its own to strengthen the resolve of the anxious and tempted Christians in a tough and attractively pagan age? When the world seems so attractive and so seductive and we are tempted and oftentimes discouraged by our own failures and those of others, the question is, is the power of Jesus sufficient? Peter's answer is clear. Jesus' power is more than adequate. As Peter sees it and presents it here in verse number three, Jesus not only sets the highest standards for Christians to live up to, life and godliness, he also gives them the resources to meet these standards. I think a part of the problem is whenever we think about the power of God and Jesus, we think of Jesus during his ministry, his remarkable teaching, and his miracles. And if we're not careful, we think, yes, in the past, when Jesus was here, God's power was seen. Peter is now address, addressing second generation Christians, not been to Palestine, never saw Jesus. And the when you talk about the power of God, the temptation is to say, oh, yeah, back then the power of God was evident. Peter wants to make it clear that the power of Jesus is seen in what we might call the seemingly unimpressive lives of men and women who seek to live lives that glorify Jesus. It isn't just in the spectacular and the miraculous. It is in our everyday living. I said there were two parts. First of all, he sets a challenge for us. The high standards set for the Christian is seen in the phrase life and godliness, which might be simplified into a godly life. 
the high standards are apparent through the life of Jesus and his teaching. Nowhere more clearly, I think, than in the Sermon on the Mount. And here we hear him say, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. This statement has puzzled and confused many as they think that Jesus is setting the Pharisees at all as the standard and you need to go beyond that standard. Uh, we conveniently forget or ignore what comes later. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. If you study the Sermon on the Mount, you will find that unlike the Pharisees who reworked the law so they could keep it, Jesus presents the law in such a way that it makes demands of us that we cannot on our own reasonably keep. In fact, it seems unfair that Jesus would set the bar so high knowing that none of us could keep it. Some would suggest a lower standard and then we would not become so discouraged. But in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is redefining the people of God. We are those who come to him not on the basis of strength or perfection, but in our imperfection and in our weakness. You see, we come to God not seeking approval, but forgiveness. The word that Peter uses for godliness, again, was very common in that time. It was the word that ordinary non-Christians would use to describe what they hope would be the result of their religious activities, that if they did enough good things, then good things would happen to them. And so it spoke of decency and honesty, trust, integrity. So it would be something that you earned. Now, Peter is familiar with this word because there was, in fact, an incident recorded in Acts chapter 3. And it's about 12 verses long. If you want to follow along, you can, but otherwise just listen. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at three in the afternoon. Now, a man crippled from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, silver or gold, I do not have, but what I have, I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Walk, taking him by the right hand. He helped him up and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. They were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While the beggar held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, men of Israel, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we have made this man walk. You see, the people were thinking that Peter must have been a very, very good man and therefore God used him in this way. Instead, Peter directs them to Jesus. Because of this, this connotation of goodness and godliness and you're able to do things because you're such a good person, we rarely find this word used in the New Testament. And 
based on what we find in Acts 3, I would have thought that Peter would have avoided it like the plague, that he would not have used this word at all. And yet he deliberately chooses to use this word. We will see why in chapter 2, as he writes about the false teachers who live wicked lives. You cannot say that your behavior means nothing. Are we to follow the example of these wicked teachers? Is the battle against sin an outdated battle? In the first epistle, Peter is very clear that Christians are supposed to live good lives. They are to be, live obedient lives that they might silence the disbelieving. In his second letter, he's not going to back down from this at all. In fact, he reinforces it with the term godliness. I'm convinced Peter knew exactly what he was doing, pointing to the impossibly high standard that Jesus set for the believer. But he doesn't leave us there. Because he continues, Jesus has or Jesus meets the challenge for us because we have an impossible standard. We might think, okay, well, why try? I'm completely inadequate to do this. Peter tells us Jesus has given us everything we need for life and godliness. The word given might be a little misleading, perhaps in its weakness. The ESV has granted, that he's granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. It can mean an imperial gift, a generous gift from the emperor that has been granted to you. Peter's use of it points to the generosity and the graciousness of the giver. Jesus has granted all that could be required to live a godly life. Because we are the people of God. Because we are Christians, we have a connection with him who has everything we need to live a godly life. Now, this, depending if you're an optimist or a pessimist, can lead either to encouragement or it can be a warning. I think it's actually both. It's an encouragement because it means that there is nothing extra that we need to go out and find that somehow we need to plug into other than what we already have. Jesus Christ has granted us in himself everything that we need to live a godly life. The gospel is sufficient. But there will always be those who come along who want to supplement the work of Christ with extra teaching. Who tell us that we are living less than Christian lives. We need this new teaching or this new experience. The reality is by believing in Jesus... We have access to everything that we need. That's the encouragement. Well, what is the warning? We'll stop and think a minute. If we have been granted everything we need to live a godly life, why are our lives not the way they should be? We cannot blame God. We cannot pretend that this is something only for a few select spiritual Christians. Cannot pretend that there is some secret formula that will transform us into godly, godly people overnight. The Christian who is not godly has only one person to blame. Having said that, it is not my intent to leave you with a sense of guilt. Without mentioning or reminding you that we always come up short 
We come, we are those who ask for forgiveness because we are sinners. We live in the in-between times. Christ has begun his work in us. It is continuing, but it will only be completed at the end of time. But this is not an excuse for not seeking to live a godly life. How do we have access to this, that which he has granted us? If you look, verse 3, through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Knowledge is something that will come up again and again in this letter. And so for a moment, I just want to leave it to the side. But focus on two things. First of all, our callings. It's tempted, and it seems natural to read the statement, who called us, you see there in verse number three, to refer to salvation. And indeed, in the New Testament, salvation is oftentimes seen in terms of calling. Um, I hope that I can explain this clearly. If we are not careful, we will imagine, because it's halfway true, that in each of our lives, Jesus calls us to be his people. But we cannot forget that Jesus came and lived here on earth. And while he was here in his ministry, in his ministry, he called all his people. Because otherwise we would say, oh, Jesus called Peter. And then later on, generations later, I have this mystical experience of Jesus calling me. But so, well, I wish I could be like Peter where Jesus actually called me in person. And I think Peter would say, guess what? Jesus in his ministry called all of us. If you look at verse number three, there are four times that he uses the first person plural pronoun. His divine power has been has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. So when Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. These are the words of Jesus to his people. This isn't just to the people during his lifetime. And now the rest of us are sort of left in a sort of a second tier, you know, pseudo mystical type of calling. Peter includes himself with those to whom he is writing. Us, we, our. Don't feel as though somehow you are less than what you should be. We must reject any notion that cuts us off from the historical Jesus. I, I hope I've made that clear. I cannot emphasize it too much. We should not imagine that Jesus came hundreds of years ago and did something then. And, and now what we do has no connection with that man who lived 2000 years ago. Peter is writing to people in Turkey, never been to Palestine, never met Jesus. But the historical Jesus is just as important to them as he is to Peter and to us as well. It's very tempting, I think, to spiritualize Jesus. And if we do that, we dehumanize him. And so uh, 
the fact that he lived here on the planet almost seems unimportant when in fact the incarnation is everything. So, first of all, there is a calling. And in that vein, we hear that he called us by his own glory and goodness. This is not some abstraction. It requires historicity. In the life and ministry of Jesus, we see his goodness. By the way, again, this is a common word in Greek. It usually refers to a manifestation of divine power. There was some, some years ago, I remember reading through Acts and being a bit uncomfortable with Peter's explanation, I think, in Acts 3 or 4 about Jesus. That he, said he went about doing good things. I'm like, that seems so generic. But in fact, it is his glory and his goodness that is seen in his life, in his teaching, in his example, and in his miracles. So, Jesus says, live godly lives, and I will grant you all that you need to live godly lives. That's the power. Verse number four, the promises of Jesus. The goodness of Jesus is demonstrated in the second resource that he's given us. He has given us his very great and precious promises. The theme of promise runs throughout scripture. Uh, by the way, I thought of revisiting it, but several times at Christmas we've gone through this, that Jesus is not the fulfillment of predictions. He is the fulfillment of promises. God makes promises to his people. And even when Adam and Eve sinned, God makes a promise, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Sin and condemnation are not the final word in creation. God's promises are. In chapter 2, by the way, we will see uh, of the promises made to Noah and to Lot. In chapter 3, we will read that the false teachers say, where is this coming he promised? And Peter will respond, he, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. This is a key theme to scripture. But what are the promises here in verse number four that Peter has in mind? There are two. You may participate in the divine nature. You may escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. The first promise seems even more grandiose than what we saw in verse number three, that he's granted us everything that we need. First of all, you may participate in the divine nature. Those who dislike Second Peter see this here as a cause to dislike it. They see it as semi-pagan, that somehow he's relapsed into a dualism that marked the Hellenistic world. And so they say, Peter did not write this. Somebody else wrote it, and they wrote it not in the first century, but in the second century. But stop and think a minute. In chapter 5, verse 1 of the first epistle, who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Well, they would say that's, well, we don't accept that either. What about Paul's writings? We read about our adoption as sons, being conformed to the likeness of his son, that we are in Christ. Ephesians 2, 6, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms, in Christ Jesus. What does this mean? 
that we participate in the divine nature. It does not mean that we are God. It does not mean that we will become God. We will always be creatures. He will always be the creator. But in redeeming us, God has given us his life. In 1 John we read, and this is the testimony, God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. When we say that we are given eternal life, we are actually given the life of God. In some ways, far beyond our comprehension. That is the first promise. The second is you may escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Here, I think we, we confront a difficulty that we face so often. If we fail to recognize that we are still sinners and we live in a fallen world, we will get into trouble. And if we fail to recognize that not everything promised to us will be fulfilled in this life, there is the already but not yet. On the one hand, we may think that life is now the same as it always was. By the way, that's what the false teachers will see in chapter 3. We fail to recognize that Jesus coming into the world has changed human history. Jesus has come in the flesh and the world has not been the same. On the other hand, we might think that since Jesus has come to the world, everything has changed and we no longer have the struggle with sin. Let's put it this way. One day we will have resurrection bodies, but in the meantime we still face death. One day we will have the perfect desire to please God, but in the meantime we still sin. That's why in our worship of God we have the prayer of confession. We acknowledge we have sinned. The difficulty, I think, is knowing that we are in the in-between times. This is also true of this second great and precious promise. One day we will be delivered from this fallen world. But it doesn't mean that we do not have deliverance now. The incompleteness of it does not diminish the greatness or the preciousness of the promises. But the incompleteness may cause us to question the validity of it. We live in tension, holding on to the great and precious promises. And with these promises in hand, the Lord willing, we will march on to verse number five next week and see what it is that God calls or asks of us. I said earlier in the sermon that the question our brothers and sisters ask in the first century, I think we may still ask today, is the power of Jesus Christ sufficient on its own to strengthen us, to keep us in the midst of temptation and discouragement when the world is so attractive and so seductive? Peter says, yes. Jesus Christ has set the standard for us. Jesus Christ helps us. He has granted us that which we need to live a godly life. He's also made promises that we may participate in the divine nature, that we may escape the corruption of the world. Peter's not finished. In fact, he has just begun his letter. There's so much more for us to see. But here he sets it out. 
the promise we have, the power we see. And now, how are we supposed to live our lives? And what do we do about people who say, "Ah, you're still lacking some things? The Lord willing, we will see this as we go along. Let's pray together. Father, what Peter has written is amazing. Yet I think sometimes we get so busy, we become so self-centered, sometimes so discouraged that we miss what is being said. Jesus calls us to live godly lives. He has granted us everything that we need. He has made great and precious promises. May we look to him, the author and finisher of our faith. I thank you for this time that we could gather to worship you. In a few minutes, we're going to have a meeting. May your spirit guide us in what we do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.